May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. As today's gospel reading opens, most of the disciples are sitting together in a locked room. Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, was not there. He'd killed himself because he was so overwhelmed by the shame and the guilt of what had happened. We're not exactly told why Thomas wasn't there, but he was elsewhere at the time. Maybe his alarm clock hadn't gone off that morning. Perhaps he was out grocery shopping. We just don't know why he wasn't there that day. But we are told why the door was locked. (laughs) It was locked because the disciples were afraid of the Jewish leadership who were wound up about Jesus, even more than the Roman occupiers had been. It is, for the record, a pretty darn good reason to have the door locked. Earlier that same day, Mary Magdalene had come charging back into town from the tomb to tell them Jesus' body was gone. Then again to tell them she had seen their risen Lord. They were probably buried in a pile of emotions and thoughts they were trying to sift through. Had Mary really seen Jesus? Or was she losing it just a little bit in her grief? Had he truly risen or had someone stolen the body? Whether he'd risen or not for real, were they going to get charged with having stolen his body? How much trouble were they going to be in over this? Their fear on this crazy, mixed-up day is totally understandable. Mary had seen Jesus and had told them so. But after getting that news from them, they just sat in a locked room fussing about what to do next. Either they are just paralyzed with fear Or they don't really believe Mary, even though they saw the empty tomb. Either way, they take no action at all after she tells them Jesus is risen. They confirm her story about the empty tomb, but then they just sit on that information. And then Jesus appears in the midst of their fear And they are confronted with the crazy, too-good-to-be-true reality of Jesus standing right in their midst in spite of the locked door. And with the shameful reality that they were still just sitting around, hemming and hawing, locked up in a room, hiding. So obviously, they rush right out and begin spreading the gospel, right? Not so much. Eight days after the first appearance, they are still sitting around with the doors locked. So I think my question about poor Thomas, often coined doubting Thomas, is if he is doubting Jesus or the other disciples, If they are sitting there, are they really 
believing and living into the resurrection story? Have they seen and not really believed? Is their fear so overwhelming that even having seen Jesus, they are still just sitting there trying to figure out what to do next? Poor Thomas, he's always seen as the one who doubts Jesus. But the others saw Jesus and didn't do anything. Thomas doesn't doubt once he sees Jesus. When we look closely at this narrative, Thomas has no less faith and no more doubt than any of the other disciples. Ten of the disciples' lives have remained the same after their encounter with the risen Jesus. Can you blame Thomas for not believing them? The best witness for the good news is a transformed life. If we aren't transformed by it, how can we expect anyone else to listen to what we have to say? If our response to encountering the risen Lord Jesus Christ is to remain locked up in the same room week after week, do we really have any more faith than someone who just hasn't encountered Jesus yet? The disciples were scared and confused, and that's understandable. There were some very scary people, pretty riled up by the whole Jesus scandal. But we need to be careful not to put all the blame on the guy who just hadn't even seen Jesus yet. It's easy to pin the label of doubter on someone who hasn't encountered Jesus yet and turn around and forget our own tendency to sit in a locked room for fear of what's on the other side of the door. Watch what Jesus does. He knows exactly what they need, and he goes straight to it. In the midst of this paralyzing fear, Jesus speaks peace. And to Thomas's doubt, he says, here I am. See me. Touch me. They may not even know themselves what it is that they need. But Jesus does gives them a little bit of a hard time for not believing and acting on that right away. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But he doesn't count them out for being slow, even when they have clearly not started off spreading the gospel right away. He doesn't give up on them. When ten are scared and the eleventh doesn't believe they've even seen Jesus, He shows up right in the middle of them. And he doesn't shame Thomas for what is referred to often as doubting. He gives him the same opportunity to see him and touch him that the other disciples had. And they are all given the same mission in the end. Go and tell the gospel through your words and through your actions, not by sitting around in a locked room talking about it. According to the latest statistics I found on the Pew Research 
center site. 73% of people in Pennsylvania consider themselves Christian. And 82% of people in our state are at least fairly certain that God exists. 64% say religion is important in their lives. 28% say it's somewhat important. But fewer than half of professing Christians, people who select Christian on those surveys, fewer than half go to church weekly, about 44%. 38% go once or twice a month or a few times a year. And 18% of self-professing Christians seldom or never go to church. These are not people who don't believe in God. These are people who consider themselves Christian. Nearly two out of ten professing Christians seldom or never go to church. This is only a little higher than the state numbers overall. And so I wonder if people today are doubting God, if they're doubting faith, or if the other disciples are their problem. Because looking at these numbers, it's pretty hard to claim that the problem with empty pews in Pennsylvanian churches is disbelief in God or lack of spiritual curiosity. We have to stop trying to claim that people who aren't in the church aren't in church because of some flaw in their character or because they doubt God or don't want to start a spiritual journey of discovery. Appears to me it's the other disciples they don't believe. Faith is more than just knowledge. It involves trust and action. Going out on a limb, stepping out of your comfort zone. And that's not always easy. It's not always easy to unlock the door. It can actually cause some serious mayhem in your life. In fact, if your faith isn't causing serious mayhem in your life, you might want to ask God what you're missing. But here's the thing about mayhem and being uncomfortable and doing the things God says to do, even if they sound crazy or unpopular or distressingly new. Once you embrace it and hop on for the ride, the joy and the abundance that flow out of it are literally out of this world, and they are contagious. Our very basic faith in Jesus is our salvation and it is what makes life beyond this world, this earthly lifetime, possible. It's what gives us the opportunity to participate in the kingdom of God when all here on this world is said and done. But it is the stepping out of the locked room, the trust part of that faith that allows us to experience the kingdom of God right now. We experience the kingdom in the relationships that are built, taking meals to homebound community members. We experience the kingdom when we give ridiculously to those who don't have the same privileges we do. We experience the kingdom when we look into the eyes of someone other people avoid and have a genuine conversation with them.
We experience the kingdom when we spend half our day talking to someone who doesn't have anyone else to talk to, even if we have a million other things to do. There have been weeks in which I have felt beat down, sad, tired of ministry, tired of this broken world, tired of the church even, and I've walked into the jail to teach a class. And suddenly I know that God is still around, that Jesus is risen and active in the world. Right there in a place full of people that the world has all but given up on. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Who did Jesus spend time with during his earthly life? The sick, the unwanted, the people society looked down on as trash because of their history or their ethnicity or their gender or their health. Of course, that's where we still find Jesus today. And just as Jesus is our living hope, we are to personify living hope. In the world around us. In John 14, 27 and John 16, 33, Jesus talks about peace for the disciples. He tells them about peace that is so much more than just a worldly lack of conflict. It certainly includes that, but there's more to it. There's something so significant here about Jesus telling the disciples peace be with you. The Westminster Theological Wordbook of the Bible, that is a big name for a Bible dictionary, gives terms for peace that include kingdom of God, justice, justification, and righteousness, reconciliation, joy, faith and salvation, love, wholeness, in body and spirit. Think about that the next time you pass the peace to your neighbors in whatever form that takes these days. There's a reason that we say the peace of Christ be with you. We're not just passing on some watered-down worldly peace to one another. The passing of the peace is not just a time to say hi to everybody for the morning. We are repeating the words of Christ that he spoke to his disciples in that locked room. We are assuring one another of the promise he brings and the mission he gives. We are saying, may the kingdom of God, righteousness, reconciliation, joy, faith, love, and wholeness be with you. We are saying that to our families sitting with us, our friends who are in worship with us, people we love and see on a regular basis, and sometimes even people we're mad at. In fact, if you are ever mad at or hurt by someone from church, you should probably make it a special point to not miss them in the passing of the peace. And even as we shift back into hybrid worship, it's going to be a really long while before we're going to be shaking hands again. But that in no way takes away from the theological significance of the peace be with you moment. 
There's a reason we kept it in the service, even though it's a virtual peace sharing these days. There is something about looking into the eyes of a sister or brother in Christ and hearing them say, may the peace of Christ be with you. In fact, a couple of our members in that video have since passed away. And seeing them pass the peace every week with us from heaven gives me holy chills every time, every week. Side note, it's not too late to be added to that video. <laughs> Call me. We're going to be using that video for a while on the website, if nothing else, or on the, the screen projected up front. Just as Jesus went out and mingled with the masses, we have been charged to do so. And we surely need Christ's peace to do that. Because without that peace, we just sit scared in a locked room once a week and talk about the gospel news amongst ourselves. And without that peace, our worship is timid and small and unheard by everyone outside these walls. But when we have truly accepted that peace that turns the world upside down, our worship is bold and big and loud and people hear about it. None of us here were in that locked room. We heard the news of Jesus' peace from other disciples. Shame on us. If we don't continue to pass that on again through our own transformed lives. In Blue Like Jazz, another book I encourage all of you to check out sometime and probably have mentioned before, Donald Miller writes, I never liked jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. But I was outside the Baghdad Theater in Portland one night when I saw a man playing the saxophone. I stood there for 15 minutes, and he never opened his eyes. After that, I liked jazz music. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It is as if they are showing you the way. I'm sure many people throughout the years tried to convince Miller through clever arguments that jazz is great. But none of their reasoning or arguments convinced him to like jazz it was the unfiltered, public, unmasked, risky, and vulnerable love for it that he saw in another person that did it. This is what the scripture means by genuine faith and inexpressible joy. It is not enough to tell the people around you that you love church. Like Thomas, it's not unreasonable that most people need to see it. It's not enough to say my church isn't like the others that have hurt you. We have to prove that we aren't or that we're trying to not be. And we have to admit that the church has hurt people, lots of them. Friends, God's living hope, Jesus Christ, is seen by the world primarily through the action-packed faith of his disciples who set aside their fear, stepped out of the locked room, and shared their peace and joy with everyone around them. And so let us together step out of the locked room in these next important months. Amen.